Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. My name is Nick Whitney, and this is episode 17, entitled Napoleon and Turning Back the Clock. History accelerates in the 19th century. The Industrial Revolution transforms global communications and commerce, and it transforms production, moving people off the land into cities where new ideologies and politics are bred. Warfare, too, is revolutionised, from the wooden sailing ships of the Battle of Trafalgar to the 20,000-ton dreadnoughts with their 12-inch guns of the Battle of Jutland. Of course, none of this was obvious as the century opened. Across Europe, all eyes were on France, with the threat of revolutionary contagion now compounded by Napoleon's seizure of power. What would his ambitions mean for the old political order? The answer was turmoil across the length and breadth of the continent, followed, with Napoleon's final defeat, by a concerted effort at the Congress of Vienna to restore as much as possible of the status quo ante. But the revolutionary virus had travelled with French armies and was only suppressed, not eliminated. And as economic change gathered pace, it flared in spectacular fashion across Central Europe in the 1848 Year of Revolutions. Again, the old order seemed to master the crisis, but within a couple of decades the map of Europe had been irrevocably redrawn with the emergence of Italy and Germany as unified states. So the last traces of the old confederal dispensation of the Holy Roman Empire were expunged, and in the new landscape of nation-states, balance-of-power anxieties became more sharply delineated, the more so as economic and industrial transformations accelerated shifts in power relativities. The scramble for Africa was a symptom of national anxieties not to be left behind, and so too were new interlocking sets of mutual security treaties. 1914 was just around the corner. But back to Napoleon. Just as Charles VIII of France had struck at the underpinnings of Habsburg power by invading Italy more than three centuries earlier, so Napoleon, as the Directory's general, had already expelled them once from northern Italy. They had returned during Napoleon's Egyptian excursion, so France's new autocrat had it all to do again. In 1800, the Battle of Marengo was the decisive engagement. Thereafter, more attention was needed on internal affairs, consolidating personal power at the apex of a system which still boasted the revolutionary ideals of popular sovereignty and the rule of law. Much of the makeover was embodied in the Code Napoleon, promulgated in 1804, which swept away the old feudal dispensation and with it the privileges of aristocracy and church. It was time for the final step, Napoleon's self-coronation as emperor, in a spectacular ceremony in Notre Dame Cathedral in December 1804. Just over 1,000 years had passed since Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope in Rome, and his legacy was invoked by the deployment of the old emperor's supposed sceptre, and a new mock-up of Charlemagne's crown. The parallel was not exact, 
The Pope on this occasion was required to attend to confer legitimacy, uh, but this time had to watch the new emperor crown himself. And since there was still a Holy Roman Emperor in Vienna, the new imperial title was Emperor of the French. But only a fool could mistake what France's ruler now intended. France was surrounded by enemies, notably Austria and Prussia to the east, backed by Russia, and Britain off to the flank. Containing and aggrandizing France was their centuries-old preoccupation. Now there was the added fear of French enthusiasm for exporting their revolution. French forces had supported an unsuccessful Irish rebellion in 1798, which had induced London to abolish the puppet parliament in Dublin and integrate Ireland into a new union with Great Britain. Across northern Italy and up through Switzerland to the new Batavian Republic in the Netherlands, France's revolutionary armies had overseen the creation of a slew of sister republics. It did not require a political genius to see that further trouble could be expected from France's new Charlemagne, and that resistance would be best organised through new coalitions. Unfortunately for the rest of Europe, Napoleon was a master strategist who knew instinctively that the best way to deal with coalitions was to defeat their constituent elements separately before they could combine. His first target had been Britain, not active militarily, but a fermenter of resistance with its generous subsidies to continental allies. But the Royal Navy stood in the way. An 1803 attempt to build a Channel Tunnel did not prosper, and after Trafalgar in 1805, plans for invasion of Britain had to be shelved indefinitely. So the new emperor instead targeted France's age-old rivals, those Austrian Habsburgs, who had again reoccupied northern Italy. For a third time, Napoleon swept the Austrians before him out of Piedmont and Lombardy, and to show that this time it was for keeps, he rounded off the campaign with his self-coronation in Milan as King of Italy. This time an authentic relic was available for the ceremony, the Iron Crown of Lombardy, part of the regalia of Holy Roman Emperors for centuries, and said to incorporate, perhaps less authentically, a nail from the true cross. Italy was, of course, still an imprecise geographical concept. The Kingdom of Naples was a separate entity, held by the Spanish Bourbons. They somehow missed the need for rapid capitulation, and soon found themselves supplanted by King Joseph, Napoleon's brother. No more sister republics these days. Conquered territories usually became new kingdoms with a Bonaparte on the throne. But the Code Napoleon was imported, and enough reform to colour a narrative of revolutionary reassertion of the people's rights. No doubt there was also talk of draining the swamp of feudal privilege. Back north of the Alps, Napoleon swept into the Austrian heartlands, smashing the Habsburg armies at Ulm and Austerlitz in 1805, and then capturing Vienna. It was time for a final reckoning with the Holy Roman Empire, or what was left of it, given that its Italian territories were now largely in French hands, that Prussia now dominated the north of Germany, 
and that others of the bigger German principalities, such as Hanover, where the English king remained its duke, and Bavaria, they had been French allies for decades, were now at best semi-detached. To the extent that the empire still retained a core, it lay in the two or three hundred minor principalities, bishoprics and free cities, for whom freelancing outside the empire was not an option. From the French perspective, it was the ones that lay close to the Rhine that mattered most, so it was these that Napoleon decided should be reassembled as a confederation of the Rhine, under effective French control. The writing was on the wall for the Holy Roman Emperor, Francis II, and he read it. Leave the ancient institution in place, and Napoleon could be expected to supplement his growing collection of crowns with that of Holy Roman Emperor as soon as he dealt with Prussia. The Habsburgs had for decades been shifting their centre of gravity away from the old empire to their dynastic lands to the east in Hungary and Croatia. And Francis had recently underlined this by assuming a new title as Emperor of Austria. It was time to bring Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire to an end. And on 6 August 1806, Francis delivered the coup de grace by releasing all states and officials from their oaths and obligations to him and then abdicating. A thousand years of history had come to an end. Meanwhile, uh, Napoleon had the Prussians to deal with. In December 1806, he crushed them at Jena and occupied Berlin before reducing their territories by two-thirds. He would shortly push on to Warsaw, brushing aside the Russians and creating a new Duchy of Warsaw under French authority. The Emperor of the French was now master of all but the peripheries of the continent of Europe. The most irritating periphery remained Britain. It stood tantalisingly beyond reach of Napoleon's armies, so he decided on economic warfare instead. His 1806 Berlin decrees declared a commercial blockade. The ports of the continent were to be closed to British ships and trade. Prefiguring Brexit, the continental power was confident that a Britain cut off from its traditional trading partners would soon feel the pain. Unlike today, however, the Britain of 200 years ago was a truly global maritime and commercial power, with the resources of a vast empire to fall back on. Certainly, Napoleon's blockade meant near-term supply disruptions, an increase in smuggling, and an unwelcome side effect was conflict with the young United States, which resisted Britain's attempts to interdite its own trade with Europe. The British-American War of 1812 was memorable mainly for the American acquisition of a national anthem. The Star-Spangled Banner celebrated a stubborn defence of Baltimore, and for the British burning of Washington. Coming only a couple of years after Napoleon burned Moscow, one might fondly recall this as a sort of high-water mark of European power. The medium-term effect of the Napoleonic embargo was, however, wholly counterproductive. By forcing Britain's development as the workshop of the world, it accelerated the country's industrial revolution. The Berlin decrees played a big part in Britain's emergence as the 19th century wore on as the world's undisputed superpower. Meanwhile, though, 
Napoleon's gaze turned west to the Iberian Peninsula. Portugal, Britain's oldest ally, had defiantly kept trading links open, and thus needed to be taken in hand. In the way was Spain, a nominal French ally under its decrepit Bourbon monarchy. So Napoleon invaded and replaced the Bourbons on the Spanish throne with his brother Joseph. That's on transfer from Naples. Spain, however, proved difficult to subdue, all that guerrilla warfare, and whilst time and momentum were lost, a British expeditionary force under the future Duke of Wellington secured Lisbon and initiated years of debilitating warfare, grimly evoked in Goya's Disasters of War print series, uh, that would eventually see French troops driven back over the Pyrenees in 1813. As the West has relearned, or at least re-experienced, in the 21st century in Afghanistan and Libya, the toughest thing about initial military success is to summon the self-discipline to know when to call it quits. So with Napoleon. If only he had pocketed his winnings in 1806 and rested content as undisputed master of the continent. The Iberian adventure was hubris, and Nemesis duly followed with his 1812 invasion of Russia. Trounced by General Winter, the retreating Napoleon was comprehensively defeated by the coalition allies, who finally got their act together at the so-called Battle of the Nations at Leipzig in 1813. A year later, Paris was occupied, with Russian Cossacks supposedly adding the word bistro to the French language as they shouted at laggard waiters to get a move on. Napoleon, exiled to Elba, prefigured modern horror movies with a shock final reappearance, the concluding hundred days which took him from France's Mediterranean shore to the battlefield of Waterloo. But by this stage, the victorious powers were already assembled in Vienna, mapping out the continent's new future. That future was to be the most faithful possible restoration of the past. There was nothing reformist about the key players at the Congress of Vienna, after 23 years of near-continuous warfare, the three victorious emperors, Russia, Prussia and Austria, along with the British under the conservative government of Lord Liverpool, were determined on a return to those happy days of stability and order, as they recalled them, before the French revolutionary fervour had wrecked the peace of the continent. And, of course, there was the future ownership of all those territories conquered by Napoleon to be settled, with each of the powers keen to see its own preeminent contribution to victory properly rewarded. From the Council of Constance to today's climate conferences, there is nothing that global elites like more than a good international congress, and Vienna was up there with the best of them, as over 200 kings and princes, as well as a raft of regional and civic delegations and lobby groups, joined the grand year-long party. The three emperors put in personal appearances, the Austrian guided by his legendary foreign minister Metternich. The British delegation was led first by Lord Castlereagh and then by the Duke of Wellington, until he had to break off to put a stake through Napoleon's heart at Waterloo. And France was represented by the veteran diplomat, once Napoleon's foreign minister, Talleyrand. These five big beasts determined the outcome. Why were the four victors prepared to accord a significant role to France? 
in part by the same logic as persuaded the Allies at the end of the Second World War that defeated Germany should not be crushed, but helped back to its feet under close political supervision. And again, as in 1945, the logic derived not just from lack of a viable alternative, but from everyone else's fear of Russia. The place might be backward, but it was huge, with almost limitless natural resources, not least of manpower. Containing Russia would be a constant preoccupation of all its Western neighbours throughout the 19th century, especially as Ottoman power declined, creating a dangerous geopolitical vacuum to the south and east. And in 1814, it had been a shock to see Russian troops leading the final push on from Leipzig to the gates of Paris. The keys of Paris were delivered by the ubiquitous Talleyrand into the hands of the Russian Tsar Alexander. Talleyrand then played on these fears to achieve the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy in the person of Louis XVIII, a reassuringly old-world figure, as Napoleon departed for Elba. Eighteen, by the way, was a brother of the guillotine sixteen. Seventeen, sixteen's young nephew, had died in a revolutionary prison. The Congress of Vienna involved a complex territorial settlement. Russia got most of Poland again, and Finland, taken from the Swedes. The Swedes were compensated with Norway, taken from the Danes. Italy was remodelled into eight main kingdoms and duchies, as well as restored papal states, with Austria reinstated in Lombardy alongside the kingdom of Sardinia-Piedmont, later to become the key actor in the peninsula's unification. The Prussians, with various territorial gains, consummated their century-long quest for a contiguous block across northern Germany from the Russian border to the Rhine. The Kingdom of the Netherlands took over the once Spanish, then Austrian Netherlands, only to lose them again in 1830 when they seceded as the new Kingdom of Belgium. Bourbons were restored to the Spanish throne, the British picked up Malta, and the Cape Colony and Sri Lanka from the Dutch, as well as some more Caribbean islands. They also became protecting power of the Ionian Islands, orphaned by the demise of Venice, which accounts for the oddity of Corfu's cricket pitch. Perhaps the thorniest territorial question was what to do with the rump of the Holy Roman Empire. Some 300 duchies, counties, bishoprics and cities across the empire's German heartlands. The solution was consolidation into the 39 states of a new German federation with an assembly in Frankfurt. Would Prussia or Austria preside. The Austrians won out, leaving the Prussians demonstrating an altogether more modern understanding of the realities of 19th century power to set up a customs union which would grow in the coming years to eclipse the Federation in practical importance. So everyone got something, and the goal of the major powers was duly achieved with a stable recreation of the status quo ante under which monarchs enlightened, of course, some even constitutional in some shape or form, could again breathe easy. The equilibrium created was to be subject to the continued oversight of the major powers, the Concert of Europe. Judged by the general absence of widespread warfare across the continent in the 19th century, 
the Vienna participants did a good job. But nothing could expunge from men's minds the notions of the Enlightenment and then of the French Revolution, ideas of democracy, human rights and accountability, would soon be forcing their way up through the joins in the pavement that Vienna had laid over political and civil society. The Industrial Revolution was underway, with social upheaval inevitably in its train, and nationalism was on the rise, with profound consequences in due course for Germany and Italy. Moreover, however carefully internal agents for change might be contained, the world beyond Europe retained its capacity to destabilise. One of the swiftest geostrategic changes post-Napoleon was the collapse of the Spanish and Portuguese empires in the Americas. The Peninsular War had knocked the stuffing out of the regimes in Madrid and Lisbon. South American revolutionary leaders like the Venezuelan Simon Bolivar, educated in Enlightenment ideals in Europe and egged on by the United States, seized their moment. By the end of the 1820s, the great bulk of Central and South America, from Mexico to Argentina, had become independent republics. And US President James Monroe had enunciated the doctrine that, in effect, declared the whole of the Americas to be in the US sphere of influence and warned the Europeans to stay out. For Spain and Portugal, it would be downhill all the way to the military dictatorships of the mid-20th century, followed by democratic renaissance within the EU. A more persistent problem was the waning power of the Ottoman Empire. Successive sultans had not adapted well to the modern world. The printing press was banned for more than two centuries. An 18th century Islamic revivalist movement which gave rise to the pernicious alliance between Wahhabism and the emerging House of Saud in the Arabian Peninsula, reinforced the fatal longing to stop the clock and exclude the outside world. Western powers were torn between their satisfaction at seeing Christendom's historic foe in decline and worries over who would fill the developing power vacuum. From the days of Ivan the Great, Russia had seen it as its destiny to succeed Byzantium as the Christian power in the East. The Russia of Peter and Catherine the Greats had made no secret of its desire to control the Black Sea and its egress to the Mediterranean through the Straits at Constantinople. In the 1850s, Britain and France would go to war in Crimea to stop Russian southwards expansion. So, when the Greeks rose up in 1821 against their Ottoman rulers... Government's first concern in London and Paris was with the opening this could offer the Russians, co-religionists after all of the Orthodox Greeks, to get their feet into the Mediterranean. But real politic hesitations proved no match for centuries of classical education. Romantic philhellenes in European capitals ensured a surge of public support for the misfiring Greek independence struggle. When the Sultan unleashed on the Peloponnese his nominal Egyptian vassal Ibrahim Pasha, commanding his colourful but bloodthirsty Albanian Bashi Bazouk mercenaries, the ensuing atrocity stories made intervention inevitable. So, London and Paris determined to bind Russia into a shared naval operation with the creation of an independent Greece as the strategic aim. 
The decisive battle took place in 1827 in the Bay of Navarino. The three-nation fleet annihilated the Turks and their North African allies. In the last major naval engagement, fought under sail. Greek independence followed soon after, but without the feared further unravelling of the Ottoman Balkan territories. The most prominent Philhellene and propagandist for the Greeks was, of course, the English poet Lord Byron. Mad, bad and dangerous to know, in the famous judgment of one jilted lover. Himself a wildly romantic figure, his club foot did not prevent him swimming the Hellespont, in homage to the drowned mythological lover Leander. But his scandalous personal life, adultery, incest, drugs, debt, etc., led to a social ostracism and years spent living in Italy. He saw a lot of fellow expatriates, the Shelleys. Poet Percy, who contrived a romantic death by drowning, and his wife Mary, author of Frankenstein. Byron departed from there to go and fight in Greece, where he died of fever. Byron, indeed, was a romantic with a capital R, a prime exemplar of the poetic and aesthetic movement that swept Europe in the early 19th century. Since they valued inspiration over technique or rules, movement is perhaps too pedestrian a word for the romantics. Fortunately, the Germans had, or rather invented, a word for it, zeitgeist a concept popularised by the German literary titan Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. The focus of romantics was on the individual and on emotional rather than intellectual responses, so they were reacting to the rationalism and classicism of the Enlightenment. They were big on nature, especially of awe-inspiring. Painters like Caspar David Friedrich and poets like William Wordsworth effectively invented landscape, especially the kind that previous generations would have dismissed as uncivilised wilderness. Romanticism was a reaction both to the preceding decades of revolution and war, but also to the advancing shadow of the Industrial Revolution. The visionary William Blake penned his poem Jerusalem contrasting England's green and pleasant land with dark satanic mills in about 1803. And it is with the Industrial Revolution that we shall begin our next episode. Thanks for listening.